1: Now, here is your host.
0: What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Welcome to the broadcast. I'm talking with Christopher Bennett, a.k.a. MC32. What's going on? He is a Denver native, currently executive chef at Street Food in Avanti here in Denver. Love a couple of the tidbits that he gave us about his background. His first job was at Luigi's Bent Noodle which is no longer around I'm guessing, right?
2: Um, you know what, I think it actually still is. I haven't wow. been down that side of Littleton in a while, but I believe it, I think they just shortened the name to Luigi's, but I think it's still there. There, there were two locations, one in Aurora and one down in Littleton. I think it's still operating.
0: Yeah, that's like a historic building at this point. <laughs> right. Uh, a couple little uh, tidbits that I loved about you too. You always have frozen pomegranate seeds in your freezer what are you using pomegranate seeds for
2: eating they're just like i I love (laughs) i have a thing for frozen fruit um it's like nature's popsicles so frozen grapes and frozen pomegranate seeds are a couple of my snacks of choice so whenever i'm i have like a sweet tooth and i just need something kind of refreshing i'll just go to the freezer and grab those and just get down on them
0: amazing Uh, my mom hates pomegranates because when we were kids our neighbors had a pomegranate tree and we would pick them and shoot them at each other. And me and my <laughs> siblings, yeah, we'd come home just covered. We looked like we just got shot up because it was covered in red juice that never came out. Oh so yeah. that's pretty funny. And then this this has got to be a thing. Uh a big hobby of yours is archery. Yeah. What is up with that?
2: Uh so a few years ago I went to the Renaissance Festival for the first time since I was a kid. And uh, I hadn't picked up a bow since I was maybe 12 or 13 years old. And they have, like, an archery range there. And I got, like, five bullseyes. And my girlfriend at the time was like, maybe you should pursue this a little bit more. Because that was really good. And so uh, there ended up being, uh, there's a, up on, I want to say it's, like, 39th and Kipling or so um there's a, a place called oh, i don't want to get the name wrong but it's something like uh dang i can't remember the name for for anything now i haven't been there in a while because of work but it's like an indoor archery range and uh so we went there and a lot of the the employees there are ex like olympic coaches and stuff like that so they'll they get you fitted for a bow and all of the uh all the necessary equipment and then they'll give you tips and everything, but then you can also get, they'll, they'll teach classes and stuff if you want to go that route, if you want to get like super serious about it. Um, but so we both got fitted for bows and then just went and it was really fun. And aside from the overhead of purchasing the bow and your equipment. It's actually like one of the most inexpensive hobbies to have because once you get the bow and the arrows, range fees usually are like maybe seven dollars. So you go in, you already have your own arrows, so you pay the seven dollars and you can shoot until your arm gets tired. So
0: that's that's fascinating. I, last time, first time, last time that I shot a bow was pretty sure fifth grade camp, right? Uh-huh. Like you know that was the first time. You're yeah. staying away forever. It was archery? That was it. I was horrible at it, so never got back into it. But who knows? Now that uh, axe throwing is super huh. chic, archery might be uh might be the next thing. And you know what? We're gonna circle back to that a little bit because one of the things that I think is very interesting about you and for everyone listening probably doesn't know, you and I worked together at Row 14 uh-huh. some years back, and we're gonna talk a little bit about the things you do outside of cooking that always resonate with me as a very positive influence on you and the people around you. So I love that you're doing archery because so many chefs don't have healthy outlets, you know, and even, even something goofy, like maybe archery is not goofy, but the first time I read, I was like, wait a minute, (laughs) 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 you know, unexpected, I should say. So Chris, now that we know just a little bit about you, we want to play one of our best served on icebreakers, fun little game. It's uh, I like this because it's an opportunity for me to think about you a little bit, the things that you're into, and with Street Feud, obviously, we got to go street food, and it's, it's an opportunity for us to just have some, some levity, some light moments before we get heavy, and then also for the listeners just to, to learn some fun stuff that uh, you're passionate about, I'm passionate about, so I'm super into it. So we're going to play a game called Street Food, Street Fight. Oh yeah, we're going to get into it. We're going to talk about five different countries in Asia that are killing it in all food, but street food especially are some of the Mm -hmm. things that I wanted to highlight, and it's going to be bracketology. So I'm going to pit two countries against each other. I'm going to mention a couple dishes that are mainstays of street food in those countries, and you're going to give us your why on who goes on to the next round. Are you ready to play? I'm ready. All right, we're going to start in Thailand. Sam which is green papaya slaw. People probably know pretty well. And then Pad Si Yu, one of my favorite, had that pork with the Chinese cabbage and flat rice noodles versus Ooh. Korea. You got the Tuk Bao Ki, those rice cakes with Goju jang, and a little kimchi pong, those uh, steamed buns. So if you had to pit those two countries against each other, Ooh. Out on top.
2: I'm going Thailand.
0: Thailand. What is it about Thai?
2: Um, I am a sucker for a good pad CU, So that is huge for me already. Like when you said that, that was like, those were the magic words. That's,
0: I, I, I picked the winner right off the bat.
2: Yeah. When I, when I go to a Thai restaurant, it's hard for me to not. Sometimes I have to tell myself to not get the pad CU and just get other things, especially if it's a restaurant that I frequent. Sometimes like, I, and I try to get myself to taste around all the items on the menu, but Patsy is one of those, one of the few that I'm like, I have to convince myself not to get it sometimes because otherwise I'll get it every time I
0: go. Well, then you try something new and then you get the Patsy to go, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I'm with you. It's such a simple, simple dish, uh, you know, tons of sweet soy, tons of fish sauce. And yeah. uh, and the thing with the Patsy to is man those noodles cook fast i mean it's so easy to turn that whole bowl to mush but then you know what i do i just cook it all the way down and fry it almost like uh yesterday's rice you know like yesterday's risotto and you like pan fry it so it's still it's still good if you ruin the noodles so i'm with you thai is moving on to the next round all right so we're gonna take thailand versus a real up-and-comer right now the philippines Mm. is crushing it right now those filipino style super umami burgers i'm loving those but a couple dishes that are really (laughs) i mean culturally so important to them the ukoy which is those shrimp fritters and then the tehran the barbecued plantains Mm. so if you had to take the philippines and thailand what are you thinking
2: oh man It's tough, but I, I think I'm just going to stick with Thailand on this one.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, Patsy, you might carry you to the end, man. Don't feel bad about sticking with that tie. Yeah. Yeah, the Philippines uh, really a lot of cool and interesting stuff coming from there. And, and everyone knows about the Shown, like the, the Suckling Pig, Amazing, mm-hmm. uh, and the Sisig and stuff. But they their street food scene I mean, is pretty strong.
2: And I mean, the papaya salad also, that's another one that I get pretty And the papaya salad is a, is one of the dishes that I judge a Thai restaurant by. Um, when I went to visit one of my best friend in LA, I can't remember the name of the restaurant, but he took me to this place that had the most dank papaya salad with like raw blue crab mixed in. And ever since then, like I've been chasing that flavor in a, in any other restaurant and like i love a great and and so a lot of times i'll get the papaya salad and the pad see or i'll get a pad thai wound sand or something like those are like my staples
0: so it's hard to get anything else i see i see the dilemma of yeah convincing yourself not to get the song tom and the pad see you i yeah. i hear you there i uh i know i'm having growing up in LA and then travel back there. I mean, LA is underrated as a as a food city. I think it's one of the best in the country, especially because of, I mean, Thai Town, amazing. Like yeah. Japan Town and Little Tokyo. The Korean food scene there is amazing. So, you're you are speaking my language. Now, I got to give a shout out to moms. My mom amazing amazing cook. Still some of the best som tam green papaya salad I've had anywhere. And like I try to make it, it's just never as good as hers. You know what I mean? And you know what Mm -hmm. I'm talking about. Like it's just yeah, absolutely. There's there's that there's that love and emotion that goes into it. And of course, being the perfectionist chef, I'm was like, damn, mom, how you how you crushing me every time. But I don't care. I love eating it. So I'm with you. Sometimes is strong. All right, now we're getting into some powerhouses. We got Thailand moving on against Korea and the Philippines. Now we're getting into China, and to say Chinese food is like saying, I mean, North and South American food put together. You know, it's so yeah. diverse, so different, and mm. so regional. I picked a couple dishes that I, I really like. The Jean Bing, those crepes, you can stuff with everything, umami. I mean, I know mm. you know a thing or two about crepes and mm. man, their version just so good. The heavy, heavy on the green onion just gets me every time. Mm-hmm. And then the Zhao Zi, those dumplings, I I had to pick two because I wanted to keep it consistent, but man, there's so many to pick. So China as a whole, we could have just gone a region of China against Thailand, but China against yeah. Thailand. So
2: I'm going to go, I'm going to keep with Thailand. However, it's a much harder choice. And me choosing Thailand doesn't take away from all the dope, chinese street food street food that there is cuz there's so much to choose from like you said so many different regions so many different like completely different flavor profiles to choose from and but but honestly when i when i think of street food when i think of chinese food i think of food that can be either street food or you know plated in a restaurant but more often than not I picture myself eating in a Chinese restaurant. Whenever I think of street food and like the first things I think usually are Thailand, like Thailand street food. It's hard for me to even picture like I eat at Thai restaurants here because that's where they where it is. But when I envision being in Thailand, I envision walking down markets, places full of just street food.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So even the sense of place besides yeah. the dishes themselves stand out to you okay i'm with you i'm with you all right final round we got thailand the uh the cinderella coming through three different competitors now we're getting into japan and we are going through all the yakis the taco yakis, the taiyaki, the teriyaki the yakitori the yakisoba
2: oh you threw the yakis at me okay
0: all this the is- all the yakis you know
2: yeah, the yakis. I'm gonna. I didn't think you were gonna take me to the yakis. The yakis are gonna win. Uh, yeah, I can't. I it, I can't pass up a good like takoyakis or my shit. Um, and then after working at Ototo and being on that robotic grill and just forming an even deeper love with yakitori's and every kind of skewer that they come up with is is incredible and yeah i think that if if i were to finally make it to japan and go to a restaurant or go to a street food stall that had just incredible skewers i would i would probably be in heaven so
0: you would eat all the skewers
2: yeah i would eat all of them twice
0: i I love it the the yakitori is where it's at. One of one of the things that changed my life, for sure, was chicken neck, dabbed with a little yuzu kosho. Just I, I'd never, uh, so yes, I had never experienced anything like that. Just that strange tendon texture, which can like be off putting, but it was so umami. And that mm-hmm. bichiton charcoal, the intensity yes. of of that smoke flavor, without feeling like burnt that that balance is is something special uh, and yeah. i know that working that grill that's something man you are you are turning little skewers of love all right thailand we are feeling you for sure japan it's hard to compete with the yakis that was yeah. that was a great game of street food street fight i am very interested to talk about some of the people that have influenced you along the way and i really want to start at the beginning so tell me kind of where the spark started for you when it came to cooking so the cook
2: initially started the the spark initially started uh when i was a little kid and my aunt got me this um abc cookbook i was like maybe five or six years old and it was a little kid's cookbook with pictures and there was a recipe for every letter of the alphabet so it was you know Recipe, easy recipes that you can make with under parental supervision and things like that, and so that kind of started it. And I used to watch, Yan um, Yang Can Cook on PBS every so often, and I, you know, that was before the Food Network days and whatnot. And then when I when I got older and my parents split, I used to go to my dad's house on Friday nights and stay till Sunday. And sometimes I would get there before, hours and hours before he would get home from work. And so he said, you know, I don't want you to feel like if you get hungry that you have to wait for me to get home. I want you to be able to be able to feed yourself. So I'm going to start teaching you how to cook so that you can be self-sufficient. So um, he started off with easy stuff like eggs and breakfast food and stuff like that. And then graduating into how in the, how to make entrees, so to speak. Uh, but they were all super basic. Like my dad was no chef by any means, but he did love, love food and love cooking. So um I definitely had that's probably where the spark hit hardest
0: yes I I love that I love that story because a couple things about it one just the family cooking aspect of things is something that so often it's a grandmother it's an aunt it's a mother things like that but I also like you know that maybe it took a situation that was difficult you know my parents are split as well Mm -hmm. uh and turn it into something positive that now has influenced your life. And also you had to be a little bit self-reliant, yeah. you know, like it, it was also like, you want to eat, you better cook. Yeah. And, and that, and that's difficult for sure when you're younger, but I know absolutely one of the things that's most fascinating, and interesting about you is that you are fiercely independent in that way. You kind of do your thing because you've had to do your thing for a lot of your life. Love, yeah. love that. And so what were you cooking? Like what were the things that really you know um, were in the in the pantry then, in the in the fridge?
2: Like well one of the one of the main things that he taught me to make which I it became it became my thing to make and and I actually won a cooking contest with it when I was 15 was gumbo. That was one of the like major things. You know, he taught me how to bake fish and bake chicken and like saute certain things and make stir-fries and whatnot. But like the main thing that I actually like Put my stamp on and actually got really, really good at was gumbo.
0: Love, love. So now, now we get let's get into the weeds a little bit with gumbo for just a second. We'll get back to these human stories, but are you a filet, a roux, or an okra thickener? Right. That's that's as I understand it. That's gumbo is how you thicken it. Is kind of the style of gumbo that you're going after. Am I right?
2: Right. So I was actually taught okra and roux.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay, nice. And are you chicken and sausage? Now I'm, now I'm um, hungry, man. Now I'm hungry.
2: <laughs> right. It was kind of an all-encompassing because my dad my dad loved everything, and so I grew up loving everything. So I wasn't picky. So he, he we, would have, we would have the sausage in there. We'd have chicken. We'd have shrimp in there. Sometimes we'd have crab legs in there. So it was just like a, gumbo was kind of like a big to-do. So we made sure that when we did it, because we didn't do it often, but when we would do it, we would do it up. So anything that we wanted in there, scallops, we would put all of it in there.
0: Oh, man, I love it. And was he the one that told you to go after the the cooking competition?
2: Um, No. So I was actually, um, so when I was in early high school, so my parents used to take me to various cultural clubs and groups because I grew up in Littleton, which is majority white. So they wanted to make sure that I also had interactions with more black kids and more black people and black education about history and things like that. So there was a group that I was in when I was young called the African American Junior Leadership Institute. And uh, I believe it was a course that went for almost a year or so, it was about a year. And um, so through that, and they, they knew that I, I liked cooking and that I wanted, I plan on going to culinary school and there was this event that I believe still goes on today. It was called 100 Men Who Cooked. Um, and it was all black men cooks. Uh, and it was like a black tie gala. And you go and you, it was at, I can't remember where it was, but it was a, a, a big banquet hall. And all the chefs would line the, the outside of the room. And then it was sort of like Taste of Colorado where you buy, you purchase, it was, a, it was a, uh, an event to raise money, so people would donate a certain amount of money, and they'd get tickets, and then they'd go to each of the however many and pay for whichever cook's dish they wanted, based on the required tickets for the dish. And whoever the top dish was would get put in the cookbook that they had running. For um, it was the group that was running. It was called Spiral Education Foundation. So. Um, the top recipes would get put in that cookbook and I had made, they told us to make enough for, I think 150 people. And I had made enough for 300 and I sold out first and, I was, 15, and I was 15 and the next youngest was 25.
0: Wow. You're, you're the, the young phenom, huh? Yeah. I fucking love that. That is an amazing story, just multiple layers. I mean, I think having that support system with the African-American community, having that young man with positive influence, right. cooking, like all those things, that's, that's, that checks all the boxes of like, yeah, and, exactly. then you, and then you won, I mean, come on. Yeah. You know? So then you're talking about going to culinary school, you're the youngest guy up there, you're cooking, gumbo which is family recipe now what was in this gumbo that you made do you remember shrimp was, scallops all of it or what it
2: was it was scallops chicken uh andouille and um i believe we had shrimp in there too
0: all right we're we're gonna organize a gumbo cook-off man for uh <laughs> celebrating your victory did you stay connected with that group i Four did years? once
2: i graduated Uh, from that that class there was it kind of disbanded because I think that initially they were planning on having there be multiple years of it and having it be an annual class where there's you know alumni generational alumni that go through this program and everything but then I guess between the organizers kind of separating and whatnot it kind of fizzled away so I was actually the only, I think we were the only class that did it before it disbanded.
0: So you're still the reigning champion. That's yeah, nice. I guess. technically. <laughs> That's nice. All right, so now culinary school, right? You're, you're cooking and working Luigi's. You're in high school. You win this competition. It's crystallized for you. You're talking about culinary school, and then I know you go to the New England Culinary Institute. You get mm-hmm. the hell out of Denver, right? Right. right. And uh, you're out in Vermont. Yeah. Tell me about that experience for you and who were the people that impacted you and did you, did you gel in culinary school or or was it a challenge? Um, Tell me about that.
2: Culinary school was a challenge, but in a good way. The school, one of the reasons why I loved that school um, and I went there specifically. So my dad uh, jumped in feet first with me into the culinary thing. So when I knew that I wanted to go, he was like, great, let's research schools. Let's make sure you get into the, the best one for you. So my junior year of high school, during summer, we went on an East Coast trip and we visited Johnson of Wales in Providence. We visited the CIA in Hyde Park and we visited the Neki campus in Montpelier and took tours of each campus. And I made my decision based on what I saw and after interacting with students and seeing what the curriculum was like. Um, and Neki was the only one where it's like the entire school is a working entity it's a business and so you're learning real world culinary skills not just cooking but also what it's like to actually work in a
0: restaurant so
2: and you're, you're already not,
0: working in a restaurant right so you didn't want well, to be so in a culinary the school that was, was a vacuum at, when
2: i was at luigi's i was only allowed to food run and expo because i was wow. under 18 at the time and they were very strict on adhering to child labor laws and whatnot so i wasn't allowed in the kitchen at all so the the first time of me stepping in a kit, a professional kitchen was in culinary school.
0: Nice. All right. So walk me through that. You're there. You're far away from home. It's a working restaurant, which you like the idea of that because you're not a culinary student that basically picked it out of a hat and said, I'm interested in cooking, but it never worked in a restaurant. So you knew that the restaurant side, that the working side was important to you. You're there. Right. And tell me about those those first couple of months, that first year. What was that like? Uh,
2: it was it was intense, and they they make the first year intense for a reason to weed out the people that don't belong, that they, that shouldn't belong there. Um, so it wasn't like a lot of the schools do now, where they kind of coddle you through and push you through to get your tuition money, and then
0: tell you they just chef want to get paid, the right? They want to get paid.
2: Yeah. Um, mm. when I, like even when we took the tour, um, one of the chefs in the bar and grill class. He had everybody, he was like, um, so who's here because they love watching the Food Network? And a few people raised their hands. And he was like, if you raise your hand, you're not going to make it. Um, he was like, who is here because they love food? And of course, we all rose our hands. He's like, who here considers themselves crazy? And a few of us raised our hands, but not everybody. And he said, if you didn't raise your hand to that question, you're not going to make it. And I suggest you look for another profession because... You, you, you come here thinking that this is going to be like the Food Network where you're putting stuff in pristine, pristine bowls and there's, oh, you put it in the oven and oh, wow, look, TV magic and we have somebody that's going to take it out for you and cut it up for you and everything like that. He's like,
0: it's not that. It's no fucking way, know. right?
2: <laughs> yeah. He's like, it's hard hours. You're working 10 to 12 hours a day. You're on your feet the entire time. The only chair that's going to be in the, in the, in the kitchen is going to be in the office and that's where the chef sits when he's doing paperwork you're it's going to be hot there's pressure there's fire there's knives you're going to get yelled at so you're going to have to cling to your love and your passion for the food that's the only way you're going to survive in this industry because otherwise you're not going to hack it
0: and it fired you up right some people were scared by that intimidated by that but you were ready
2: yeah so that same chef when i started uh when i got to his class rode me he was the biggest asshole in the entire school and he, he tried his hardest, he tried his hardest to break me. Um, I never had somebody anywhere really in any form of education try to like actively try to get me to quit or like drop out and give up. But he, it was like, he, it was his mission to do so. Do you,
0: do you feel like he saw something in you or he was singling you out because that's his, that's his
2: that's way? I, I honestly I, I can't even really say for sure how I, I would, you know, romantically I'd like to say yes that it was him wanting to push me to my to for, to better myself. And I'm sure that in retrospect if he saw me be successful, he would say that that was his aim. But I kind of feel like he was just an asshole and he thought that I didn't belong there because I was young. And and it's funny because our whole outlook on culinary school in this country is really backwards compared to, like, for example, how, Fran- how France is.
0: Tell me about that. What does that mean to you? Um,
2: so a couple – a few years ago, I went on a chef exchange to Brest France. And so I stodged in a couple restaurants, and I shadowed a couple chefs in one of the culinary schools out there. And the culinary schools out there – we're talking middle aged kid, middle school kids. So, they're for the first year students are like 12, 13 years old. So I'm in these classes, and I'm watching these kids, these 12, 13 year olds with better knife skills than half of the two thirds of the line cooks that I've worked with, and some of the chefs that I've worked with over the course of my entire career. And they're not even old enough to drive yet. And it's like they they're there to learn and to, to, to grow those skills. So it, it makes, it made so much more sense why they're so far ahead of us food-wise, just because the, the culture around food is so different and cu- cooking. And so it was like, uh, it blew my mind because here I was one of three 18-year-olds at my school. Everybody else was between twenty-five and or 25 and up. There were some people that were in there that were in their 50s, some that were in their 40s and 30s and had uh, switched careers and things like that. And so it made no, I, it, it made no sense to me even back then because he was trying to get me, that sh- particular chef was trying to get me to quit and told me I needed to quit school, work in the industry for five years, make sure I liked it. And then if I felt like I, I should be there, then start school. So to me, that seemed really, really backwards because where else would you do that? Where else would you don't stout, start in an accounting firm and then be like, oh, I really like accounting. Let me go back and get a degree in, a, in accounting.
0: Yeah, interesting, interesting. And so that instructor, if you were to go back and see him today, do you thank him or do you go, fuck you, I did it?
2: Um, I, I'd probably blend the two. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Sure. And I, would, like, and I would probably, I would probably cut him off before he was allowed to take credit. Try to take take credit and say that he did it on purpose that way.
0: Yeah. Of course. Of course. Because if you didn't make it, I told you so. And if you did, you're welcome. And yeah. And neither of those things are true, right? Exactly. It makes a lot of sense. All right. So you're out of culinary school. You're back in Denver. I know you cooked at some killer places. I think when we first met, you were at working for Jen Jasinski and Beth. At yeah. uh, uh, remind me where you working for them?
2: Uh, I was part of the opening crew at Rioja.
0: Yes, Rioja. And and then as I mentioned earlier, you and I worked together at Row 14. Yes. And one of the things that always struck me about you was how bought into culture you were. Uh, having worked with a lot of people, it was something that was always important to me for a couple of reasons. One, I just think it's the best way to build a team. And two, I was a little crazy. And so I was not always good at thanking people in the moment and having short-term empathy. But I was uh-huh. always really driven for having long-term empathy. And so things like the systems that I built and especially the things that were to kind of try and nurture the people there were important because I would forget about them if I didn't have... a a box to check but for you they were innate and one of the things specifically was cooking dinner for the dishwashers it was something that I always pushed everybody to do I tried to always do it once a week myself and there were definitely some people that I'd worked with over the years that it was like a burden like seriously like I don't want to cook them dinner I've just been cooking for six seven hours I was like they are the hardest working person in this restaurant the most important person their work touches every single guest and you know what? We don't thank them enough. Me, personally, I don't thank them enough. The least I can do is cook them dinner. And I remember you were all over it, all over it. And and we cooked them, like, nice dinner. You know, not like the fish that uh, uh, was left over. Like, nice dinner. And, and I, always, I always appreciated that about you. So I think, you know, if I had a couple of people on that you would work with at that level, I'm sure that they would say the same about you. Now, another thing that I noticed about you was, and I mentioned, alluded to this, I guess, earlier, MC3-2, right? So you're also a hip hop artist. I yeah. remember having been to, to two of your shows and, and several of the other coworkers we had coming to a show. I love the positive influence outside of the kitchen that you were trying to have with your music and bringing other people in. So I wanna to touch on that really quickly sure. because most of the time after work, we would go and get blacked out drunk. And it was like this badge of honor. And I think a lot of that is getting exposed now as just toxic and unsustainable. And I remember the couple of times we went after work to go watch you perform. It was a whole different energy and vibe. And I just want you to maybe connect the dots, you know, real simply, real quickly for us of like what hip hop means and how that's connected to your cooking and moreover the people you work with in the restaurants, what that's meant to you.
2: Um, it's funny because to me, hip hop is like so there there there's cooking and hip hop are sort of parallel passions of mine. And um of course cooking is the more practical one. So that's kind of the one that I spend the most time doing, especially since that's the one that pays the bills. Um but hip hop has been Part of my life before I even wanted to be a chef, like even though I still liked cooking but hip hop used to be my has been my driving force and it's still even when I'm not performing it just the music itself and the culture of it um, is kind of what keeps me glued together for the most part um, and a lot of times when I meet people on a professional side on the professional side kitchen, culinary wise I don't mention the hip-hop thing. Uh, because I know that there's a stigma. And not only that, but especially within the past 15 years, it's gotten to the point where everybody's doing it. So everybody knows somebody that's trying to rap. And I know exactly what that stigma is like. So I generally don't lead with that because I don't want people to go, oh, another grown ass man trying to rap or whatever. And
0: That you're, that you're some fake MC.
2: Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I kind of let it just... Naturally, guide its way into conversation. Or as I'm working with people, and then they might hear somebody else that knows me already mention a show, or or go, "Hey, how was the show last night?" Or um, there's been a couple times where patrons have come in that were fans of my music that didn't know that I was a chef, and they see me and they call me by my stage name in the kitchen, and people are looking like, "What is that all about?" Type of thing, and then that opens the dialogue about the conversation, and then there's a whole thing of that stigma where people like, Oh, you, you rap. Okay. And then they're like, Oh, well let me know when you have a show, but it usually takes about six shows before people actually get curious enough to actually want to go to one. And then when they go and they see how I am, especially because my stage presence is so different from my kitchen presence.
0: It's an alter ego for everyone listening in the kitchen. You're so chill. cool like finesse smooth even the way that you move when you're cooking let alone how you're interacting and then you're a fucking beast on stage (laughs) like absolute switch uh and i love it i love it you can you can hold both sides of those of yourself and maybe sometimes in the kitchen both sides of those because we're human come out and that's the you know plates getting thrown you're throwing you're throwing bars exactly just you're just doing it on a stage versus in the kitchen as a healthy healthy outlet. And I always love that. And everybody that went to your show is just the connection. And so I know there's somebody that we both worked with, was very interesting when you and I were talking a little bit that has really been something. somebody that stayed connected with you. And I remember the very first show that I went to was also the first show I believe that he went to. So talk to me a little bit about our friend Spike Billings and kind of what he's meant to you in your career over the last few years,
2: Spike has been like my my road dog. He's been, we've worked at I think five or six restaurants together now, um, and he's just been the most solid and dependable person I've ever worked with uh, consistently on on the level that I've been on. Uh, I've definitely worked with some solid chefs and everything, but you know, chefs I have their own thing going on. Uh, exec chefs. But as far as somebody that was kind of on the uprise on the, on the trajectory and still trying to find their place within the industry like I am, um, he's been somebody that I've been able to call on and he doesn't hesitate to make sure that he has my back and vice versa. And one of the things that I've always admired about him is that he kind of has his own unwavering standards on how things should be he knows and and it's actually gotten him in trouble a lot and i've had to go to bat for him a lot because of the fact that he ends up stepping on toes because of how unflinching his his standards are and so some people if he comes in as a line cook or as a prospective sous chef and he's working circles around the sous chef that's already in place or and he's calling out certain things that the sous chef might be doing wrong, even if it's not in an asshole way, the fact that he's calling them out on stuff that they would normally just coast by on, especially when it comes to you know um, health department type of stuff, then it gets him in trouble because then you know a lot of times he'll walk into cultures where you know a lot of restaurants are very clicky. and so the sous chef and the executive chef might have a a, a, a deep bond. So as soon as he starts ruffling feathers with the sous chef, then the word goes up, up the ladder. And then it's like, okay, well let's figure out what we're gonna do about this guy.
0: And- I, I, lo- I love this relationship. So to paint, yeah. uh, paint a picture, and anything that I say that may sound the meaning is not. Spike is an amazing guy, but Spike uh, will put his foot in his mouth. Uh-huh. But I just want to paint a picture of, of the two of you because you're 6'3" yeah right yeah uh right you're demonstrative guy uh th- this and and ho- hopefully the joke goes over well but this totally reminds me of like rob Deerdick and christopher boykin like oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah you totally. know what i mean because, yeah because uh he is maybe what five six uh like white as the driven snow uh-huh. uh t- a tough little like new york rangers fan with a tattoos and a nose ring and kind of a little bit of uh, uh, punk rock you yeah. know, and, you, and your smooth hip hop. So yeah. it's, I love it. It's, it's oil and vinegar into the best vinaigrette possibly. This, this is amazing, those kind of connections. And what you're talking about is important. It's almost the defining reason for me doing this podcast and having best served. And the next line after best served is unsung culinary heroes for this show. Because there are so many people that are so passionate that dedicate their lives, blood, sweat, and tears to this industry, thanklessly by the industry at large individuals. Hell, like I said, me, myself have not respected or, uh, called out these people enough. And this is like atonement time for me because spike is exactly the person that I want listening to this saying you fucking matter. Like you are yeah. so important to this industry and you're a journeyman and finding your way, finding your place in this dysfunctional family unit that this industry is, is so, so important. And some of the rifts that are happening now with people getting out of the industry and, and uh, you know, labor shortages and, and generational things and culinary school and food network, all these things. yeah, the, It still doesn't matter when it's like about people. And about creating passion and purpose through having this team. And so Spike is exactly the kind of guy that I want listening to the show and saying, you matter in the Absolutely. in the most critical way. We're seeing it. We're seeing restaurants that can't operate to the to the level that they should be. So I mm-hmm. think that's I think it's amazing. And when you said that to me, it just my fucking head blew off because <laughs> it's great. And I and I remember you guys vibing. I remember uh, hip-hop being something that you guys definitely connected on. yeah. Totally. So it's cool to see it having gone on and not knowing that you guys have worked together multiple times. So uh, so I love that. So I want to kind of put a pin in this because this is perfect. Uh, I think we captured quite a few different people that have a big impact on you and what it means to be a part of this industry. Uh, street food now at Avanti, right? You're yeah, so out there testing well, actually- a new model.
2: It's actually Street Feud, F-E-U-D.
0: Yes, Feud, Street Feud. And you're doing street food at Street yeah. Feud, right? Yes. I saw Bao's Tacos. I got to get down there. I saw kimchi on multiple dishes. You know, that's, that's my jam yeah. for sure. Yeah, and uh, and so you guys on the first level, second level of Avanti? Second. Nice, the slightly bigger kitchens. Mm-hmm. Right, People got to get down to Avanti for sure. Just an awesome, awesome spot for sure summertime that that patio out there with the, oh, yeah. with the rooftop is killer and and you're cooking you're behind the behind the stoves and that's tiny so it's you and one other person in the kitchen at a time
2: uh no we actually have four and we usually each shift we have four people
0: oh it's that's uh that's tight in there
2: <laughs> yeah we make it work though uh because it's uh it's definitely meant to be a springboard and. Um, I don't know if you have time to, for me to talk about a little bit of the, the history or, or the reason why Street Feud is what it is. Yeah, tell me. Um, so the owner, one of the owners, Merlin, Merlin Verrier, me and him worked together as line cooks at Rioja back in the day. He went off uh, to Chicago, worked with Graham Elliott, helped him open a couple of his spots. Uh, he, he also was culinary director for Lollapalooza for like a decade, and so he's done, a, he like, he cooked Obama's 49th birthday dinner.
0: Like, Damn, yeah, that's no joke.
2: A, yeah, did a bunch of cool shit. So I ran into him at Denver Food and Wine last year. And he was like, yeah, I've got this, this like hip hop centric street food, like counter service street food concept that I'm, look, that I'm looking to start. And I was like, dude, I don't think you could have set a better geared situation for me than that like
0: that's um, all, that's you that's you
2: yeah exactly and so um he's like yeah i'm 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 working on securing my funding and he's like and he was telling me that basically the whole point of of this was to start changing the culture of how restaurants are he's done the whole michelin uh, star restaurant thing he's and as have i and we, we he recognized and we talked about the fact that the industry has gotten to a point where People are leaving because we don't know. The, the industry has done a horrible job of taking care of its people. And so it, he's like, at the end of the day, I just want to get a solid team that cares about cooking good food and leave all the pretension and the ego and have a crew where we care about each other and that we can still be human beings and still have personalities and still joke and have fun and listen to dope music and put out good food at the same time. And so I was like, yeah, sign me up. And so it took, a, uh, after a year, I thought that it maybe fizzled, you know, things, things don't work out all the time when you're coming up with new concepts. And then uh, when I was at Ototo, uh, a few months mu- in July, I got a message from him saying he got his funding and we sat down and had a talk and we we're like, yeah, let's, let's move forward. I, I met his other partner, Hal, and we moved forward uh, with the concept. And so then we started hiring and basically we got a team of strong, sh- like at least, at least sous chef level cooks um, who are all of the same mindset of, they wanna enjoy coming to work and they wanna en- enjoy being like feeling like they actually, like the company that they work for actually cares for them and that there's upward mobility. We're, we're planning on we're expanding rapidly and the ultimate goal is to have 25 street feuds nationwide um, the goal is to have we'll have at least two more by the middle of next year in Denver the goal is to have five in Denver by 2021 and then sit back reflect on how those are going and if they're still going in the way that we want them to then start expanding into BNC markets across the across the nation and that's
0: awesome i love hearing that
2: absolutely and so the cool thing is is because we're expanding so aggressively then the people that we're bringing on board are able to see that the upward mobility and see that it's not a glass ceiling so they don't have to worry about like oh well chef chris is friends with merlin so he's not going anywhere chef spike is friends with chris so he's not going anywhere so what am i doing coming in here every day because I'm not gonna get anywhere, I'm not gonna get to grow anywhere because everybody on the top tier is friends with each other.
0: Yeah, and you're touching on, a, on an important thing. It's the why, it's creating yeah. purpose is, is so important. And like you said, people haven't been taken care of enough and it's time to kind of redefine what that means. Absolutely. Okay. And that's getting, it's getting forced upon a lot of restaurants and the yeah. people that are, are listening and responding and thinking differently are the ones that are going to win in and, and, or the ones that have ridiculous amounts of money. And so it's like, if we want the independently owned idealism of what restaurants and food can be then we got to start, we got to start thinking differently. And I love that approach that you guys are taking responsibility to create an environment in the short term that is conducive to humans, you know, yeah. to people, because they're what really, really matter. It's always the people. And also creating the long term of we got to grow these people. And we know that if we don't have multiple outlets, that we're going to lose some strong, strong people. So I, I love what you're talking about. I think this is really great. So everyone needs to go get down to the original Street Feud in Avanti to support what I think is a, is a really valuable and important mission for the future of this industry, 100%. So with that, I want to leave people with a quote that you gave me that I really love and just get a, a moment of reflection from you. Mm-hmm. Nobody should have enough power to bring you down to depth that aren't becoming of you. That feels so relevant today when people are just getting smashed left and right not the fault of social media. Social media isn't changing us. It's exposing us. But right. definitely, right, you can connect with more people via social, and then also you have to deal with the ramifications of it. That's true with everything. But it feels very, very relevant. Why Why that quote for you?
2: Um, so as relevant as it is to social media, I also mean it in the context of the culinary industry. Because mm, yeah. we are... You know, since we're just starting to move forward on changing how we treat people, a lot of us still are used to, and a lot of chefs are still of that same old mold of yell, treat your, talk down to your employees, treat them kind of like shit if they make a mistake to where they fear making a mistake. And then a lot of cooks get to the point where they hold that, they can only hold that in for so much, and then they erupt. And you either erupt or say you say, fuck this job and you no call no show and you just, you're, you're out and you screw yourself as far as your resume goes and all that other stuff. Um, so to me, it's like, um, it becomes, it's always been about having your own personal zen where you can, you can take some, some shit like that, somebody degrading you and, and be like, okay, well, I'm going to allow you to be the asshole and i'm not going to allow you to make me lower myself because at the end of the day if i if i'm the one walking out if i'm the one saying fuck this or fuck you then you then have control over the narrative to say this person just screwed over the entire restaurant and then everybody in the restaurant hates you even though you are the one that was on the 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 back end of being berated and whatnot so it's like having your own personal set of standards and not letting what anybody says to you lower you and lower your value and lower your standards and get you so riled up that you're like, fuck it, I'm, I'm done. Or, or fuck it, I'm going to unload on this person. Because then you end up doing yourself a disservice. And more often than not, the people that you intend on, on hurting aren't the ones that get hurt. Like when you walk out on a job executive chef it's rare that the executive chef ends up getting screwed over that much it's more of so the line cooks that end up having to work double shifts and six days to cover your shift while they while the restaurant tries to find a new cook things like
0: that so that's true that's not you taking your power that's relinquishing it actually exactly but by yeah man you're a poet let me tell you (laughs) Uh, i'm i recorded this right so i'm gonna get the transcript and, and I wanna hear these in a lyric of one of, your next, uh, one of your next songs. So we've been talking to Christopher Bennett, AKA 3-2, hearing about his story, his journey through this industry and the people that have impacted him along the way. And he had a specific shout out to Spike Billings a guy I know well because we actually all three worked together at Row 14, which is, I believe, where they met. So I'm I'm happy to and excited to talk to Spike Billings. Spike, thanks for hopping on a call, brother.
1: Hey, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. You know, yeah. So I want for
0: everyone listening just give a little background on you, and then get into kind of why the hell you're in this industry, and then talk about your relationship with Chris a little bit, and kind of what that means for you. So
1: tell us uh, where were you born and raised. Right on. So uh, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, back in 1979, and I uh, just actually had a birthday on Sunday, so I just turned 40. Happy um, birthday! Thanks. 40 young. That. Yeah, no, exactly. You know, filthy forties or whatever the fuck they call it. You know. <laughs> but, yeah, um, I can't hear. I can't hear that Brooklyn in your voice at all, man. You, no, you, not at all. Right? Not at all. It must sound like I'm from <laughs> it might, like talk my car on Turn Street or some shit like that. <laughs> uh, I hear it. And so, what was your first job in the industry? So my very first job in the industry was at 15. It was actually at a Wendy's, just flipping fucking burgers, you know. Amen. That everyone was, starts somewhere, right? Oh, yeah, no, exactly. You know, so that's what it was. It was flipping burgers and shit, you know, learning how to work a fryer and, you know, all that type of stuff. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't change it from the world because, honestly, I mean, the way corporate places are run, you know, it really shows you, you know, structure and stuff like that, you know, because I've worked at many mom and pop places that are like, you know, total shit shows, you know. <laughs>
0: no doubt <laughs> you And know, so
1: I'm, you've been in you've been in colorado for how long now uh this past uh july made uh, nine years so nine years
0: and yeah. so you've been it's just a glutton for punishment man what keeps you in the industry all of these years and moving around the country and and working with an asshole chefs like me like what keeps you what
1: keeps you in the game you know, like a lot of different things. It's, they're all connected together. Love, uh, love of food, you know, the passion, you know, the uh, interest in the science behind cooking. Um, You know, the, the bond that I had with uh, my grandmother who used to cook for us all the time when I was younger, you know, she passed away when I was like 21, she took her own life. So it's like, you know, she really was my inspiration. You know, there's, there's only one other person besides her that was more inspiring and actually pushed me to cooking. And, Tell us um, about we, that person. And, uh, well, it's actually technically not really a person, but it's the, uh, the fucking Swedish chef from the Muppets. <laughs> you, you fucking Muppet, man. Oh, I was four, maybe five years old. I was watching the Muppets with my mom, and uh, it was the first time I had ever seen him, and I'm playing with my Hot Wheels cars and shit, and I see him doing his thing, and I started throwing my shit all, all over the place. I'm like, Ma, look, I'm a chef. She looks at me. She's like, don't do that to yourself. Now clean up your mess and uh yeah here i am
0: <laughs> the classic story of grandma and the swedish chef on the muppets i love hearing that right? so you've been in the game for a minute you've Almost been forty-five years yeah you've been a, a journeyman worked in a lot of different kitchens yep. and you kind of found a kindred spirit in in chris bennett now uh, painted the picture a little bit of you know you guys couldn't feel like more polar opposites the tattooed like (laughs) punk rock uh new york kid who's into the rangers and the smooth talking six foot two uh hip-hop mc right i mean i love it it's like the odd couple and the fact that you guys have stayed so connected yep yep exactly fascinating and exactly what like we need to hear more about in the industry so what is it about what is it about you and Chris that vibe so well in this had you
1: guys work together, what, It's seven restaurants now? Uh, somewhere around there, six or seven, at least six. I believe the one that we're working at currently right now that we helped to open is, uh I believe, number seven. So, I mean, we just, I don't know, something about us, it's like the polar opposites. Like you said, it's like it's like watching, um, what was it, Twins with Danny DeVito and freaking Schwarzenegger? <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's really, like, a really good way to describe it, you know? I said um, it was like Chris Boykin and uh, Rob Deerdick. <laughs> right? <laughs> yep. Yep, yep. Dude. So, I don't know. It's just it's like, you know, think about the yin and yang. You know, you got the, the dark side. You got the light side. You got the, you know, not saying that I'm evil or anything like that, you know, but I'm an asshole, you know, and he's not, and we just kind of complement each other, you know? Um, I like
0: that. And so, talk about the relationship. Like, how do you guys, how do you guys cook together? What's that creative process? What's that uh, co-working Process like how do you guys vibe
1: together when you're when you're in the kitchen? Well, um, you know we'll just somebody one of us will think of like a random ingredient and think of like ten different ways to use it, and it's like yo hey what do you think about this and this and this and then we just bounce the ideas back and forth over each other, you know. I I tend to lean towards more of like the high end you know molecular gastronomy a scientific, what the fuck you know, and he's just got that old school you know. Um, kick-ass fucking French background and everything that I fucking love too. But, you know, we just, we keep each, keep each other in check and inspired too. Cause it's like, you know, we, we fine tune each other's ideas, you know? And, yeah. Um, that,
0: that kind of collaboration, that back and forth, yeah. yin and yang, it's like, uh, Sherlock and Dr. Watson, like the best ideas come from who knows where the fuck they started. Right? I think that's interesting. So what was really, I think impactful was listening to Chris talk when we were interviewing but also just generally having conversation with Chris he's so committed to us needing to give more fucks about, about the people within our industry the people yeah. working alongside and not mm-hmm. treating them like just numbers right and, and that seems like a, a something that you guys are trying to really have be fundamental in Street Feud mm-hmm. and what you guys are doing so how does that manifest?
1: <sighs> you know, it it starts, it starts with us, you know, and conveying the, the, uh, you know, providing people with the type of, uh, you know, behavior we expect from them, the way we talk to people, the way we talk to each other, just the way we carry ourselves, you know, we really, uh, we really practice everything we preach. We don't just sit there and say, hey, you know, we're trying to create a good environment where, you know, we want you to feel like a person, like we, we, we do this shit, we walk the walk, you know, and um, it's, it starts by being, you know, humble people that, we know what we're doing. We're confident, but we're ready to learn and grow. And we we all just know that you know everybody there is. It, it, we're not a cog in a fucking you know machine or anything like that. We're specific ind- individuals whose strengths and weak, uh, weaknesses are complemented by each other, and you know really lifted up. You know, and that's what we focus on. You know, and we always every day try to push, you know, being better than the day before. But coming from a place of love and passion and uh, respect instead of, you know, the old school French way. Oh, what the fuck is this shit, you know? Throwing shit, yelling and stuff, squashing, yeah. all that type of crap. You know, that's that type of shit doesn't fly, you know?
0: As- yeah, it's interesting. We came up that way, and we thought it was a badge of honor getting stuff thrown at our head and the, that kind of mentality. That's been exposed uh, pretty wholeheartedly as fucking toxic, no doubt. Oh, yeah. And, and then there's generation stuff like our kids these days aren't as committed. I don't know that I believe that. I just think they may not be as willing to, to deal with that dumb shit as we kind of were. And so now it's time to, for us to redefine what hospitality means, both for our guests and for our team members. And so give us a, a, a little pearls of wisdom. I like the way you're flowing right now. Uh, something about, you know, if somebody's a line cook out there listening, that's just in the fucking grind, feeling like they're they're just chum. Or vice versa, a chef who's trying to figure out a way to connect with their people on a more meaningful level, but just gets stuck in that rut where they're just busting balls left and right because they think that's what makes them a good chef. Right. Give us some, some pearls kind of headed in both directions for us to kind of take into the world and try and make it a fucking better industry.
1: Well, I'll tell you this, you know, start by looking the fuck inside you, you know, and mm. think about your behavior and those types of things, the way you're treating people Are you really truly happy inside when you do that shit? You know, are you really truly happy when you're, you know, imitating your fucking idols or the chefs that you've come up through, you know, their kitchens and shit? Are you really happy with that? Do you feel good about yourself at the end of the day by yelling at somebody and belittling them and teaching them, but teaching them out of fear and anger? You know, really think about that and think about what it felt like when you were coming up doing that shit and how much of a piece of shit you felt like, because I know how many nights, God, where I lost sleep thinking, man, I'm a piece of shit, I'm gonna fucking lose my job tomorrow because the fucking bruno wasn't fucking perfect. Well, fuck that, you know? Like, (laughs) you know, I was always taught to live and learn out of fear, you know? And that's no way to do shit, you know? That carries over into so many different aspects of your personal life. And my advice is just like, think about what you went through And what you would do right now to start changing that shit, and and just do it. You know, it takes time, but it's got to start from within. You know, and self love and self care is where it's at. That's one of the things that, you know, we really, really, really push at Street View for everybody, not just management or you know, anything like that. It's for fucking everybody, and uh, you know, that's really where it all starts from. You know, just reflect inside. You know, are you really happy with your behavior? You know, what would you do for yourself? to make, you know, things better for you and really, you know, just start to learn to love yourself. You know, I mean, it's what I've been doing for the last two years. Cause I'll be honest, two years ago, Chris and I, we were working at a place in a very, very awful spot. And uh, that's when my marriage started to uh, go to shit. And there were several nights, man, where I wanted to put a gun in my fucking mouth and just end it all. And uh, I didn't obviously, cause here I am stronger than ever. But- we're happy for it, man. For sure. <laughs> Me too, man. Me too. I honestly didn't think I was going to see 40 for many reasons, but, uh, you know, it was back then that I realized I'm not being good to myself. I'm treating myself the way everybody else has treated me, in the industry, outside of the industry. And that's got to stop. And it's, you know, it stops and starts with me. And I think that's something that everybody should do, you know, a lot of self-reflection and, uh, you know, just run with it, you know?
0: Yeah, I think those are, those are good words of advice. I knew talking to you, Spike, you'd have some pearls of wisdom knowing, knowing how you like to flow. I think, it's, I think it's important stuff that we're talking about right now because people need to take care of themselves. They need to take care of each other. We yep. need to figure out. I've been talking a lot about purpose. Like yeah. We had purpose. So even though it was dysfunctional, we were the island of misfit toys. There yep. was some kind of galvanizing purpose. We lost track of that and now we're not able to kind of understand how we articulate what comes next within this because this industry has all the potential to be better than it ever has been if we kind of come together and and have meaningful dialogue, which is what these conversations about. So I could not be more proud of where you guys are at and to have this conversation means a lot because what what you're fucking speaking is real, man. And I think more people need to hear it on both sides
1: of the equation. You know, exactly. you know. So, everybody's got to stand up. You know, but it starts with standing up for yourself. You know, like you got to know your self worth. You, your, you know, you know, what what kind of value do you have for yourself? You know, if you don't have yeah, any, you're in a real bad spot. You
0: know, that's that, that self awareness is key, my friend. I knew this was going to be a great conversation. You brought a lot of value to people listening, who are are feeling like underappreciated or feeling like they're disconnected or looking for different ways to lead their teams or be a part of a team. So we're going to keep this dialogue going. Spike, I appreciate you. It's be a great episode. People are going to, to take some pearls of wisdom away from this. I
1: have I no doubt. They, I hope so. And I hope they do something with it. Cause you know, it's another thing, you know, nobody's going to do it for you. You gotta, you gotta grab it and run with it yourself. You know, I hear that. I appreciate you. Thanks for talking. No problem, man. Thank you. Cheers.
0: Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.